Well, this weekend marks the beginning of Passion Week, uh, the week that chronicles the final uh, days of Jesus' earthly life. And as such, we are going to take a, a short break from our study in Romans in order to focus up or focus on the events that are leading up to uh, Jesus' ultimate death and then resurrection. And we're going to focus on three uh, key elements uh, over the course of the next several days. Uh, this morning, I'm going to address the, the trust of Palm Sunday. And then uh, this coming Friday night, we're going to have a, a Good Friday service at 7 p.m. here in the worship room. Uh, where the entire church family will, will be here, including the kids. And Mike Bongo is going to be speaking that evening. He's going to talk about the, the treachery that occurred on Good Friday. And then finally, uh, next weekend, Resurrection Weekend, Pastor Ben will be preaching on the triumph of the resurrection. So it's trust, treachery, and triumph. That's the game plan for the course of the next seven days. So let's get started. If you have a, a Bible with you or you have a, a Bible app on your phone, if you would make your way to uh, Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44 uh, this morning. If uh, you don't have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. If you can't reach one, just speak to your neighbor and they'll pass one down the row. Uh, so Luke 19, 28 to 44. And if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, I would ask that you would do so. And when he had said these things, that would be Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, allow me to give you uh, this morning's big idea right out of the shoots, and it's this, that Jesus can be trusted in all things because Jesus is in control of all things. Now, in any relationship, trust is huge. In order to have a, a healthy marriage, a husband and a wife must be able to trust one another. Uh, in order for a a child to experience a healthy childhood, the child needs to be able to trust mom and dad. They need to be able to trust grandma and grandpa. They need to be able to trust aunt and uncle. And if they can't do that, they will not have a healthy childhood. For anyone to, to have a healthy workplace, both the, the employees and the employer must be able to 
trust one, of the, one another. And when there's trust in a relationship like that, the business flourishes. When there isn't trust, uh, there's all kinds of frustration and the business languishes. For a church to be healthy, the congregation has to be able to trust the leadership. Vice versa, the leadership has to be able to trust the congregation. The same is true for a a sports team, for a band, for a military squad, or any other uh, group of people who have come together in relationship. For a relationship to be healthy, it has to be built on trust. But what exactly is trust? It's a word that we throw around. Maybe sometimes we don't think about what does it actually mean. Well, the way to find out what words mean is you go to the dictionary. Merriam-Webster says this about trust. It says that trust is a firm belief or confidence in the honesty, integrity, reliability, justice of another person or thing. Now, notice what it says. It says that it is a firm belief. It's not just a belief. And it's a firm belief that is based on empirical evidence, something that you can actually see. In other words, the the person in whom that we place our trust has proven themselves over a period of time to be trustworthy, and they have done it consistently. They have been consistently honest consistently integrous, consistently reliable, consistently just. So the person who we are trusting in, they have demonstrated over time that they are a person of character in whom we can place our trust. But I believe that there is an element of trust that the fine people at Merriam-Webster have missed. And that element of trust is something called control. Now, for some of us, when we use the word trust and control in the same sentence, it doesn't bring confidence. It actually brings fear. And the reason that it brings fear is because there has been one or perhaps a multitude of people in our lives who we should have been able to trust, but instead they have destroyed our trust Because they are controlling. They're verbally, physically, monetarily, relationally, perhaps even spiritually abusive spouses or significant others or parents or friends. They are people who who manipulate us and hurt us through the abuse of their power and they use that power to control every aspect of our lives for their own kind of twisted benefit. And unfortunately, some of you have experienced that in your lives. And that, brothers and sisters, is not the kind of control that I'm talking about this morning. You see, being controlling and being in control are two completely different things. And when I use the word control in the context of trust. I'm talking about someone who we can trust because they have consistently demonstrated control over themselves, over their emotions, and over the situations that are occurring in their lives. So when this person asks us to do something, especially something that perhaps we're unsure of, perhaps something that could be potentially dangerous if things don't work out the way that we all think, When they ask us to do those things, we do them. Why? Because we trust them, because they have demonstrated over a period of time that they are in control. Now, allow me to illustrate this for you this morning. Now, I I have always strived over the last 21 years to be very transparent with you as a church family. Uh, Sometimes to my detriment, uh, sometimes to the great frustration of my spouse, Kathy. She's like, Mike, that was way too transparent. Uh, I have shared with you over uh, the years my likes, uh, my fears, uh, my failures, on occasion some of my successes, but I have never ever told you that which is my greatest regret in life. And so I'm going to do that this morning. 
And uh, th- this regret has impacted uh, a lot of things in my life, uh, the way that I have done relationships in the past, uh, because this regret has brought shame in my life. And uh, some of you think, why, why are you ashamed of this? But, but I am, and let me explain this to you. My deepest regret in life is that I have never, ever served in the military. Now, let me explain this for you. Uh, my dad, uh, when I was growing up, when I was a, a, a wee little boy, he was in the United States Marine Corps in, in the 60s. And I can remember, uh, you know, wearing his dress blues. And I can remember uh, from a really young age being able to, to sing the Marine Corps hymn. And, uh, you know, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. I won't go the rest of the way. Both of my grandparents, my, my, my grandpa Leonzo and my grandfather Baker, both of them served in World War II. My grandpa Baker was in the Battle of the Bulge. He was uh, shot by the Germans. He languished in a, a German prisoner of war camp for about four months with a bullet still in his leg until he was liberated by the Americans. And over the years, I have had many opportunities to follow in their footsteps. And especially in, in, in my early college years, in my early working years, I was more concerned about making money and having a good life than than sacrificing the way that my dad and my grandfathers did. And for that, I have been very ashamed of. And so this past year, well, actually last year, uh, I decided to do something about it. Now, what I quickly discovered is... uh, whether the recruiter be uh, a Marine uh, in the Navy, the Air Force, the, the Coast Guard, the Army, the Merchant Marine, they want nothing to do with, a, at that time, a 57-year-old man. But what I did discover was I was not too old to serve in something called the United States Air Force Auxiliary, which is called the Civil Air Patrol. And uh, many of you may not be familiar with the Civil Air Patrol, but the Civil Air Patrol is the Air Force's domestic search and rescue arm. So if a small plane uh, goes down in a desolate area here in in the continental United States or Alaska or Hawaii or Puerto Rico, uh, if a hiker goes missing in the woods, if a natural disaster occurs and they need some type of of airborne reconnaissance or they need supplies uh, to be flown into uh, maybe uh, an area that has been surrounded by a flood. It's the Civil Air Patrol that is activated. And while the Civil Air Patrol is not the military, and I want to be very clear about that, uh, it's as close as I possibly could get to serving our country. And uh, on top of that, the bonus is, you know, one of the things that happens in the Civil Air Patrol is they have airplanes that they actually allow you to fly, uh, which the Air Force pays to have that actually happen. They don't pay you, but they pay for the cost of the airplane. And so that's really good. But what I discovered that in order to fly the Civil Air Patrol aircraft, uh, they're very serious about how you have to do this. And... Uh, Pilots initially and then annually, they need to receive a check ride from an instructor pilot to, to prove that they're able to handle the airplane. It's kind of like a driver's test, but it's done in three dimensions rather than two dimensions. And uh, I took my first check ride with the Civil Air Patrol uh, a little over two weeks ago, and uh, my instructor was a retired brigadier general. Uh, from the United States Air Force. He was an amazing pilot named Bruce Thompson. Uh, He has over 30,000 hours of flying airplanes. So uh, he flies little Cessna 172s like like I fly. He he flies C-130s that you'll see flying out of Harrisburg International. That's the big four-engine plane that kind of roars around here almost every single day. And he was also a, a captain... Uh, for the airlines flying an Airbus A320. So if anybody knows how to be in control of an airplane, it's Bruce Thompson. And so two Mondays ago, Bruce and I, we literally shoehorned ourselves into this tiny little Cessna 172, and he tested my skills. And so we we did uh, steep turns, we did... uh, power off and power on stalls, which are are a lot of fun. They're nerve-wracking initially. We did uh, climbs and descents with with view-limiting goggles, which keep me from being able to look outside so that I I have to be able to fly everything by the instruments. And then 
while I'm doing that, Bruce would take post-it notes and cover up certain instruments uh, so that I would understand, you know, if he could see that I could continue to fly even when I didn't have uh, primary flight control instruments and everything went great it was a a great time we did a couple landings uh, down in york we're making our way back to capital city airport we're about eight ten miles away from the airport i I make the uh, initial call to capital city telling them i want to get landing clearance and they give us landing clearance and and we're making our way and we're getting closer and closer to the airport uh and he says to me mike did you hear that i'm like hear what he goes, did you hear the engine shut down? And he pulls the throttle all the way back. So now the propeller is just windmilling. The engine has not shut off, but the, the propeller is basically making next to no thrust. And uh, what he's doing, he's testing me to be able to do an emergency landing. Because when you fly a, a single engine airplane, when, when, when that big fan in the front stops working, you have to put the plane on the ground. And, and so... Uh, this part of the exam was to see if I could actually put the plane on the ground in one piece on the runway at Capital City Airport. Now, the problem is you've got to manage the airspeed and the altitude while you're, you're a glider, basically. And if you don't manage the airspeed and the altitude properly, one of two things is going to happen. One is you're going to land short of the runway, which would put me in the parking lot of the old New Cumberland Army Depot, or you're going to end long of the runway, which I'm going to need my easy pass because I'm going to be landing on the turnpike. So I'm trying to get this stuff all situated. And uh, what I realize is we are way too high. Uh, and, and so what that means is if, if I don't get my, my ducks in a row, we're, we're going to land on the turnpike. Now, obviously, that would not happen because the engine is still operating. I could push the throttle in, but I'm not going to pass if that happens. And, and so there's a way that you can lose a lot of altitude in an airplane very quickly, and it's not just to push the yoke forward because you gain airspeed that way, which does not help. So what you do is you do something called a, a forward slip. And basically what happens is, is you turn the, the, the aircraft, you bank the aircraft in one direction, and then you step on the rudder pedal, which kicks the tail end of the airplane the other direction and makes you start flying through the air sideways rather than forward. And because you're flying sideways, all the, 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 the friction from the wind, the wind is blowing against the side of the plane rather than the front of the plane. And because that's happening you begin to, instead of descend like this, you begin to drop down like that. And at the end, you need to kick it around and and land. And so I had never been this high, this close to the airport. And so I I kick in this forward slip. And and Bruce is saying to me, he's like, you need to put it all the way in. And I'm like, okay. So this is kind of Tower of Terror, Walt Disney World kind of stuff, all right? And uh, so I, put, I would have never done this by myself. Uh, so I, you know, I slip, but not like this. And so I put the, you know, I deflect the, the ailerons real far, step on the thing. We're just dropping like crazy. I'm looking out the window trying to make sure we're still heading for the runway. I'm looking at Bruce to make sure that he is still, his heart is still beating and he can help if I'm in trouble. And this is what he's doing. He's, Mike, keep it in. Don't let it out. Keep it in. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep this slip in. Don't stop. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I'm glad he knows what he's doing right now. And, and so he just keeps saying that, keeps saying that, keeps saying that. We, we drop like a rock. We're right at the end of the runway. We kick the thing in and we land the airplane. Now, why in the world did I do that? I wanted to pass, first of all. But second of all, I did it because Brigadier General Bruce Thompson was in control. And I knew that I could trust him. I knew that he had been there before. I had known that that, that he understood what was going on and so that I could completely trust him. And here is where the parallel comes. On March 14th, 2022, the sky above Capital City Airport with Bruce Thompson 
there was trust for me because he was in control. But there is infinitely more trust than what we just read. Because on March 29th, 33 AD, two Jewish men on that first Palm Sunday demonstrated infinitely more trust than I have ever demonstrated. Now, let me explain this to you. In the passage from Luke that we read earlier, Jesus, as I said, he's in the the last week of his earthly life. And his impending death is not something that is taking him by surprise because it has been the plan from before the beginning of time. And how do we know that? Because in Matthew 16, Jesus tells us that. Now, before we read that, let me give you a little background to Matthew chapter 16. Peter, in Matthew 16, has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who alone is the Savior for all who repent of their sins and receive him through faith. And and Peter has has articulated these things. Jesus says, you know, know, humanity hasn't shown this to you, but the Holy Spirit has shown this to you, Peter. Peter. And, and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, they're blown away. They're like, oh my gosh, we've been hanging out with the Messiah. I mean, it is earth-shattering. Everyone is completely blown away. But that's not all that Jesus reveals to his disciples. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, Jesus, he's well aware of what is going to happen on this passion weak. But he doesn't just know what is going to happen. He actually is in control of what's going to happen. Look at what we read in John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again This charge I have received from my Father. All the events of the Passion Week, the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly, all of those events, they are under the sovereign control of Jesus Christ. None of this that we are going to see today that we're going to see on Friday or we see next Sunday, are out of the control of Jesus. And the Bible testifies to this in time and time and time again, in place and place and place again. You look at Romans 3, Romans 8, Acts 2, Isaiah 53, all testifies that, that, that God is ultimately in control of these things. And the fact that Jesus is in control teaches us three fundamental and I believe life-altering principles if we allow them to work in our lives. And here they are. Number one, we can trust Jesus because he controls the intimate details of our temporal life. We can trust Jesus because he is in control of even the most finite pieces of our temporal life. We can also trust Jesus because he is in control of the grand details of our eternal life. All the things about salvation, he's in control of. And we, if we refuse to trust Jesus, we get to experience the pain of having him not in control of our lives, but the world in control of our lives. So let's look at the first one, that we can trust Jesus because he controls the intimate details of our temporal life. Verses 28 and 31. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has needed this. 
So here we have Jesus and his disciples, and they're making their way to the city of Jerusalem. They're about two miles away. And, and Jesus is well aware of what's going to happen. And I don't know if you've ever been in, in one of those situations where, where you're, you're going to a place, you're kind of fretting going to the place. Perhaps maybe someone who you love has died, and you're going to the funeral home for the very first time to see that body. And, and, and you know that, that feeling inside of you as, as your stomach gets tighter and tighter, as you get closer and closer to the funeral home, knowing that you're going to have to face this very difficult thing. This is what Jesus is experiencing. This is what he sees. This is about the, 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 the sight that he would see as he is coming up the Mount of Olivet. There's the temple in the background. Jesus knows that inside those walls... He's going to be arrested. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be disrespected. He's going to be drugged out of that city, ultimately nailed on a cross on the hill of Golgotha. That's what he knows is about to happen to him. It's looming before him. So is his death. And he presses on. Why? Because he and he alone is in control. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Roman leaders, no one. He and he alone is in control. And it's here that Jesus commands two of his disciples to travel a short distance into a village just outside the city walls to receive a colt which has never been ridden. And why does this happen? It fulfills a prophecy some 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. And Here's what Zechariah's prophecy says 500 years earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus also tells them, hey, when you go to get this colt, if the owner's got a problem with it and they ask you, what are you doing? Why are you taking our colt? You simply tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. We read this thing, and we really don't think anything about it. We think, yeah, I would have done that. Jesus told me to go get a cult, and, you know, I, I would have done that. Let's put it in modern-day context for a second. Let's just say that Jesus shows up here, and his game plan is to go to the capital steps in the city of Harrisburg. But he's got no way to get there. So he comes to our church family, picks out two of us, and he says, hey, I'm in need of some transportation to get to the capital. And there is a Subaru dealership over here on Paxton Street. And, and I want two of you to go over to the Subaru dealership, and I want you to, to pick up a 2022 Subaru Impreza, because that's the cheapest one they got. And you're going to find the door's going to be unlocked, the keys are going to be in the ignition, just going over there, middle of the day, while the workers are all doing their thing, just hop in that bad boy, fire up the car, drive it off the lot, bring it to me, I'll hop on the hood, we'll drive downtown. <laughs> Who's going to do that? None of us. Because what we know, we know as soon as we put our tail end into that thing, the owner's going to be all over us, right? He's going to say, oh, just tell the owner that the Lord has need of it. And then people are going to look at you like you're out of your mind. But Jesus' disciples do just what he commands. Look at verses 32 through 35. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloak on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And I love those words. And they found it just as Jesus had told them. But it gets better. In the middle of untying the colt, the inevitable happens. The owners are like, what you doing with my colt? And they're like, the Lord has need of it. And off they go with the guy's colt. And why does this happen? Every detail fulfilled because Jesus is in control of the situation. Here's just another example of how Jesus is in control of all things. 
I'm going to steal a little of Mike Bongo's th- thunder from this coming Friday evening service at 7. Luke chapter 22 tells us about the Last Supper. Let me read it to you. It says this. So Jesus went, uh, sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large open room furnished, prepare it there. Lots of detail. Go into the city. There's going to be a guy who just happens to be carrying a water jug. He's going to meet you. He's going to take you to a house. There's going to be an upper room. You're going to find out that the upper room is completely furnished, ready to go. What happens? When they go to the, into the city, they find a guy with a water jug. They find him, follow him to the house, and everything is just as he has told them. How can Jesus do these things? He's God, plain and simple. And because he is God, he is in control. And because he is in control, you and I can actually trust him. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. There is nothing that occurs outside of his sovereign will or permission. As such, Jesus superintends over all the events of our lives. Now, some of us have had horrific things happen to us. And like, where's God in the midst of this? Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is either the cause or he is the one who allows it to filter through his fingers because there is some grander plan. And some of these things I know are horrible. But think about the cross, the most horrific thing of all. God uses it what? For his glory. And for those of us who claim the name Christian, if we take time to reflect on our lives, it doesn't take very long to realize that Jesus is in control of all of this. He has used people and experiences and events to demonstrate in our lives that he is in control, that he has a plan for our lives, and that he can be trusted. Many of us are Christians. Why? Because he put just the right person in our lives at just the right time to speak to us about our sin, our desperate need for forgiveness, and his provision to forgive sin. He put that person there so that we might know him. And similarly, many of us are working the particular job that we're working, serving in the particular ministry that we're serving in, married to the particular person that we're married to, living in the particular place because Jesus has sovereignly orchestrated the events of our lives that have made that happen. And he has clearly shown that he is in control of even the most intimate details of our temporal lives, that he even uses our sin ultimately for his glory and for our good. And we can trust him both in the present and the future because he is in control. But his trustworthiness extends even beyond our temporal lives. It extends to our eternal lives. Let me explain that. Look at verses 35 and 38 of Luke 19. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so I read this passage, and I tell you that that part of the passage is going to show us that Jesus is in control of the grand details of our eternal life. And if any of you paid any attention to this, you've got to be like, where in the world are you getting that from, Mike? Well, the fact of the matter is, I didn't get that from there. I had to go somewhere else. I had to go to a, a parallel account of the triumphal entry That's recorded in John chapter 12. Let me read this to you. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast, which is in Jerusalem, they're coming for 
the celebration of the Passover feast, so these are all pilgrims, had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, went out of the city to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So not only were Jesus's disciples celebrating the triumphal entry of him coming into Jerusalem, which we learn in the Luke account, we also learn that there is a large crowd of Jewish pilgrims who had come from the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which we learn from John's account. And what made these people come out of the city to worship Jesus as he makes his way on to, into Jerusalem? We find the answer in the verses immediately prior in John 12. It says this, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Lazarus is going to get a chance to die a second time. And because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So these people who were in the city of Jerusalem, they had heard the news that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and when they discovered that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and as a bonus, he's, he's bringing along Lazarus, it's like Journey coming to Hershey, and they're bringing Toto along with them. Great bonus. All right, when they find this out, they, they flock out to meet with Jesus. But they learned more, or many did this more than because they simply learned that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. What does it say? It said many believed in Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they placed their faith and trust in Jesus because he had demonstrated what? That he had control over death itself. You see, Jesus can be trusted not only because he's got temporal or, or control over our temporal lives, but he also has control over life itself. Listen to what Jesus says to Lazarus' sister, Martha, as she grieves Lazarus' death. He says this, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And as much as he's posing that question to Martha, he's posing that question to every one of us. Do you believe this? Do we really believe that when we repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we will be raised from the domain of spiritual death to spiritual life and live forever in the presence of God? You see, Jesus doesn't offer himself up as a great teacher. Jesus doesn't offer himself up as some wonderful example. He offers himself up as the one and only true God of the universe who ultimately controls life and death itself. And if Jesus can provide Lazarus with life after his death, he certainly can do the same for us who repent of our sins and receive him as Lord and Savior. And this brings us to our final point. We can refuse to trust Jesus. And when we do, we get to experience the pain of having the world take control of our life. Look again at verses 41 to 44 of Luke 19. And when he drew near the city, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in, on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus spent the entirety 
of his three-year ministry focused on one group of people, the Jews. He showed them from their Bible, the Old Testament, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that forgiveness of sin and eternal life was not achieved through sacrifice of animals or through one's ethnic background. And he offered eternal life to those who would repent of their sins and receive him as Lord and Savior. Yet, at the end of his day, at the end of the day, when when his earthly ministry has come to a close, only a handful of Jews had trusted him. The vast majority of Jews, many of which are laying their cloaks on the ground, waving palm branches, and singing Hosanna in the highest as he rides into Jerusalem on a colt are going to be the same people in about five days that are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, these people ultimately refused to trust Jesus. And because of that refusal, they entrusted their lives to the control of a world and the associated pain that comes with that control. And these words that Jesus spoke in 33 AD... They were prophetic. And 33 years later, in 66 AD, they would begin to be fulfilled when the Jewish people decide that they are going to rise up against their Roman oppressors. And over the course of the next four years, thousands upon thousands of Jews are killed. And then in 70 AD, the Roman rulers, they were done with the Jews. They laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They breached the walls. They loot the city. They burn the Jewish temple. And they ultimately destroy the city in its entirety, not leaving one stone upon another. And from that point forward, for nearly 1,900 years, the Jewish people were scattered across the face of the earth. And why did that happen? Verse 44 tells us, They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, the ancient Jews suffered greatly because they missed Jesus when he was right, right, right in front of their eyes. He was right there. And sadly, even to this day, so many people, they, they continue to miss Jesus even though he is right in front of them. Some of them miss him because of their apathy. They simply don't care. They're too caught up in, in the things of this world. And they just don't care. Why should I care? I don't care about my own life. Why in the world should anybody else care about my life? Others miss him because of their pride or self-sufficiency. They think they simply don't need Jesus. I can get through this life on my own. Others miss Jesus because of, of anger and disappointment. God has not delivered the way that they expected God to deliver. God has left me down. And we're hurting. He's, he's taken away my spouse. My marriage has fallen apart. My kids are losing their mind. And God has not delivered. I've tried to be good. And he's not delivered. And they're angry. And in that anger, a lot of times we miss our own sin that brought a lot of these struggles on ourselves. Or they're deluded. And they believe one of the the thousands of lies that are in our culture, that all roads lead to God. That somehow that, that good people get to God when the Bible tells us that there is none good, not even one, especially the guy talking to you right now. Others say there's not even a God. And regardless of the reason, the end result, it's always the same. In 1 John 5, we read this, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does 
not have life. With Jesus comes life eternal in the presence of God. And without Jesus comes death eternal, forever separated from him. Now the question then becomes, how does God feel about the people who reject him? Those who are apathetic, those who have pride, those who are angry with him, those who have delusions in their lives. How does he feel about that? What does he think? Does he take satisfaction in their suffering? Does he dance on their grave? Does he rejoice at the consequences of the rejection? No. Just as Jesus weeps over those who rejected him in the first century, so he weeps over those who reject him today. Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, God, he takes no pleasure when those reject his son. He takes no pleasure when people submit themselves to to the control of this ruthless and horrible and broken life. He takes no joy in any of that. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that today? What do we do with this as as Good Friday and Easter morning are coming down the road? What do we do to this? As those who've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we rejoice in the goodness of God, that he has forgiven our sins that are great, that we experience grace and mercy, and that that grace and mercy comes over and over and over and over again because as we go through life, we become more like Jesus, but we sin along the way. And God forgives, and he restores, and he redeems, and he takes broken things, and he makes them new. And so as those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we rejoice in the goodness of God. And we look at those who have yet to come to Christ as objects of love of people that, that, that we need to pour our hearts into. Not people to look down upon, to be angry with, we, to divide and all these crazy things. We, we, we pour our hearts into those who've yet come to faith in Jesus. And for those here who have yet to come to faith in Jesus, my question is, how is this working out for you right now? How is life going for you right now? Is this the life you're living, the life that you want? Perhaps it is. But if there is something missing, something that that, that you can't make things work together, you can't figure out things, how they work together, I'm here to tell you there is one who can give you that answer. His name is Jesus the Christ. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Anybody who tells you differently are out of their minds. They are a liar. They are deluded. Even the most atheistic uh, 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 historian will not deny the life of Jesus because it's undeniable. And there was a cross, and Jesus died upon the cross, and the body was gone from the grave. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what happened? What happened to that body? Because if the Romans could have gotten their hands on that body, they would have brought it out so quick. If the Jewish rulers would have got their hands on that body, they would have brought it out so quick. Why? Because they wanted this Jesus delusion to die. But the body was never found. And the Son of God appeared again and unleashed a movement through the world that continues even to this day. What do you do with that? 
the obvious answer is you fall on your knees and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you too might be saved. And I beg you to consider that. And if you have questions, I beg that you would talk to me or Pastor Ben or Bongo or someone who's invited you to this place because he is alive and he is coming back one day. And when he comes back, he will not be coming back as a savior on a cross. He will be coming back as a king and a judge. And we want to be on the right side of that. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for those who you have brought to this place. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who have yet to come to faith in you. Lord God, I recognize that unless you move in their life, unless you put a small spark of faith in their life, that, Lord, they, they, their eyes will remain shut and they will not see you. But, Lord, would you move? Would you move in a powerful way in their lives so that they might begin to believe and confess and, Lord, that they might know the great joy that comes through faith in your Son. And, Lord, for those of us who have come to faith in you, who have received you through repentance and belief, God, I pray that you would make us the kindest, most loving, humble, gentle people on the face of the planet. Lord God, may we proclaim your goodness to a world that desperately needs you. And Lord, as they have rejected you, we know that many times we will be rejected. But Lord, may we live with a heart of kindness and goodness proclaiming all the days of our lives the glory of your Son and the hope that comes through his resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to uh, prepare to take an offering right now. Uh, Thank you for those who who have have given online, who uh, give through the mail, who are giving now. Uh, We're grateful for that. For those who who aren't able to give, we we understand that. We, We pray that God would change your circumstances. Uh, If you haven't filled out a communication card, if you just write your name on it quick, that lets us know that you're here. God bless you guys.